Welcome again, a time and place to contemplate. And if you choose to, sound off about issues large and small, some significant and others less so, but perhaps fun. I'm Michael Jackson. For ages, there's been something of an unwritten code of the fraternity of former presidents. Generally, they don't criticize each other. That has changed. Jimmy Carter has taken on the president from Crawford, Texas, in unequivocally critical terms. Not since Herbert Hoover slammed FDR has there been such vitriolic criticism as when Hoover heaped a whole lot of criticism on Franklin Roosevelt, blaming him for the Great Depression. In the current exchange, President Carter fired the first salvo by declaring that Bush's tenure in the White House was, I quote, the worst in history in terms of international relations. President Carter, speaking on BBC Radio, added that the almost undeviating support by Great Britain for the ill-conceived policies of President Bush in Iraq have been a major tragedy for the world. Then, in an interview with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, President Carter was quoted as saying, I think as far as the adverse impact on the nation around the world, this administration has been the worst in history. How tough are his statements? Well, Professor Lloyd Garner, an American history professor at Rutgers, said Hoover had some pretty harsh things to say about his successor, but Carter has gone beyond anything that Hoover ever said. The Bush administration response to the Carter criticism included the following. It's unfortunate he's proven to be increasingly irrelevant with those sorts of comments. They referred to the former president as reckless and out there. I would simply ask the question, but isn't he accurate? From the late 1980s until the turn of the century, the percentage of women in the United States who had a mammogram in the previous two years increased amazingly, from something like 37% to over 70%. But sadly, that appears to be changing. The just-published online edition of the journal Cancer estimates that the percentage of those having a mammogram is now showing a rapid decline. Why? Nobody appears to know. Reasons being considered range from an increase in the number of women without insurance and higher co-payments to less fear of breast cancer. With no mammogram, the greater the risk that a small tumor will be undetected until it becomes large enough to be obvious and dangerous. For starters, doctors have to increase their reminders of the need of regular screenings, and somehow we need to find a way of extending regular screening to the uninsured. As a sidebar, a couple very close to us have a story that appears to be more typical than unique. She was considering having her breasts enlarged with a most reputable and experienced plastic surgeon. Her husband, himself a trained surgeon, was not pleased with the idea, but his response was simply put, it's your body, do with it what you will. But all he asked was that she wait just three months before making the decision to undergo the surgery. She waited and decided, for whatever reasons, to forget the idea. Six months later, a mammogram detected a small tumor. Thank God she didn't have the implants. Following the cancer surgery, she's now in good health. Do you support or oppose the idea of cameras in the courtroom? I support the idea. With a prohibition on coverage of jury selection, the seated jury, sex crime victims, unless the victim would agree, and of course, children. The major, 
after repeated argument against the presence of the media in the courtroom is that cameras would, in all likelihood, sensationalize a trial. Maybe in some situations, but then a judge would make the decision. Perhaps the reverse happens. Frequently, the mass of cameras outside on the courtroom steps is like a rugby scrum and its mayhem and madness and very little to do with justice. There are, at this stage, still a handful of states which prohibit television coverage. New York being a prime example. In the Empire State, a couple of decades ago, a variety of studies were conducted by distinguished judicial experts, and they agreed that in most cases, cameras belonged there. Hasn't happened yet. But with the backing of their new governor, Elliot Spitzer, there is a new effort to allow the judge to decide when to televise a trial or when to shut the cameras down. Lest we forget, the Founding Fathers guaranteed us the right to a public trial. I agree with them. The election 2008. Is this the way to go about selecting a national leader? According to the polls, at this stage, two of the top five Republican candidates the most favored among the top five Republican candidates, have not yet even entered the race. There, Fred Thompson, the former Tennessee senator who plays a prosecutor in Law and Order on television, and Newt Gingrich. He, the former controversial Speaker of the House of Representatives, has said that there would be, and these are his words, a great possibility that he would enter the Republican presidential field. Gingrich told an ABC interviewer, we are now in this virtually irrational process. It becomes more and more partisan, more and more narrow. It's exactly the wrong way of choosing a national leader. The three current frontrunners don't appear to have much intensity of feeling or real support from the Republican voters. In fact, Republican voters have diminishing feelings for their three declared frontrunners. Then there's Michael Bloomberg, the current mayor of New York. He is preferred by the city's voters over the former mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Billionaire Bloomberg has denied his ambition to run for president. However, he has been quietly consulting about his prospects of entering the race as an independent. Why not? He's supposedly a Republican. Before that, he was a Democrat. Add to the overall scene with names like Mitt Romney, the former governor of Massachusetts, John McCain, the senator from Arizona, and the rest in the running, and it appears we have a dozen or so personalities with ample credentials and appeal to the masses as a vice presidential candidate. And now you'll notice there's already talk about the age and possible infirmities of Senator McCain. He's had a hard life, from POW suffering in Vietnam to cancer. One commentator pointed out that not only would he be the oldest to enter the White House, he'd be an octogenarian in a second term. In an excellent article written by Carla Sequist, a playwright printed in the Christian Science Monitor under the heading of Wrong Way to Judge a Candidate, she writes, If substance replaces spectacle in media coverage, if character is weighed over personality, if maturity trumps adolescence, then the electorate will be prepared to vote wisely. Amen to that. As a people, as a nation... Americans believe in redemption, so it would seem like an extremely fine idea. Let's revise how we pick presidents. Maybe if this is the case, we might learn better to appreciate and understand those who seek to be our leaders. 
How many days of the 45-day sentence do you think Paris Hilton will be spending behind bars? It appears now that two or three weeks at most. It tends to make a mockery of the system when, for whatever reason given, you know, good behavior during the time spent behind bars or jail overcrowding, the guilty party is released after a short while. Getting graphic, as with all others serving time in jail, Paris Hilton will be humbled from the word go. She'll be taken inside, photographed, strip-searched, or as she might call it, dating. If given the chance to interview either her or her supportive parents, I'd choose the grown-ups, and they get a kick out of her. Strange world. Can you imagine how well-paid you would be in this world of pseudo-celebrity if you managed to take a photo of her behind bars in the county jail uniform? That's hot. Speaking of sex and its worth in our society, it appears that sex is worth more than porn. Explain yourself, Jackson. An internet domain name was recently auctioned, and it brought the second-highest payment for an address since the beginning of the web. You ready for this? Porn.com brought in a sales price of $9.5 million. Joseph Men, a Time staff writer, did some research and discovered that this website has had a wonderful rate of return. When the domain was first sold in 1997, the price was $47,000. $47,000 then, 10 years later, $9.5 million. Continuing the research, there was a better price paid for another sex-related website. To buy sex.com, someone shelled out over $11 million in cash and stock. I laid out nearly $17 for MichaelJacksonTalkRadio.com. How many innocent people, nearly all of them men, serving time on the death rows of our nation's penitentiaries, are not guilty, are completely innocent? You'd think that with the passage of time and more and more sophisticated ways of studying evidence, few if any innocent people would be found guilty, and in many cases executed. The most recent report I've read, and this continues the trend towards opening up cases from yesteryear, is the story of a man who served fully 19 years in prison for the truly sadistic murders of his companion's two children. Now he is a free man because he didn't do the crime but he did the time. Prosecutors argued correctly that DNA evidence in the case would likely change the mind of the jury. Here's another irony. The DNA evidence points to a neighbor who testified against him at the 1988 trial. He is currently in prison for three sexual assaults. We can never repay the innocent man, never give back the lost years. And by the way, in this case, prosecutors had sought the death penalty. It's amazing that he wasn't executed because the facts were so gory. Anyway, last week, the Senate Judiciary Committee in New Jersey, where this occurred, passed a bill to replace the death penalty with a sentence of life without the possibility of parole for the most serious crimes. According to the noted attorney, Barry Sheck, over 200 wrongful convictions have been overturned with the use of DNA evidence. One day, we will join the overwhelming majority of nations that have done away with capital punishment entirely, I hope. Here's a question that we'll likely put more mileage into than will the French. It's a story of a beautiful and elegant French woman named Cecilia. She is a very private person, heading for what one might consider to be a very public position. The woman is a former high-fashion model working for the House of Chaparelli, who was for years her husband's close political aide. No more. 
She's already publicly proclaimed a while ago that she doesn't see herself as the First Lady. Her words, that bores me. I'm speaking of Cecilia Sarkozy, wife of the new President of France. It appears, according to the tabloids, they play around. Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, when speaking of this issue, put it accurately. The French can be very, well, um, French when it comes to the personal lives of their leaders. You may remember when President Mitterrand was buried before a worldwide audience, both his wife and his mistress were following the cortege. Anyway, Cecilia left her husband for several months in 2005 to, it is claimed, live with a French communications consultant, reportedly as a payback to her husband's affair with a French journalist. On the evening when Monsieur Sarkozy won the presidency and made his acceptance speech, Cecilia was not there. There is much more that could be reported and likely will, but probably not by the mainstream French press because of their strict privacy laws. Maybe they'll reunite for the sake of her two children from an earlier marriage and one with Sarkozy. Maybe for the presidency and for France. And maybe, just maybe, judged by the picture of the two of them kissing on the front page of many newspapers this week, none of the rumors are accurate. I don't think it's my business to know. The Reverend Jerry Falwell died of a heart attack at the age of 73, and the news made the front page, as they say, above the fold in papers across the land and around the world. I had the chance of speaking with him by phone and face-to-face -face in studio on several occasions. The founder of the moral majority was always a good guest, challenging, outlandish, bright, and sometimes, perhaps on most occasions, willing to share many preposterous ideas. He would readily apologize publicly when he offended people with his extreme views. I found many of his ideas unlikable, but frankly, I never found the man unlikable. I think that bugged me a bit. Of all the conversations I can recall was one where he spoke of his father, his father, Carrie Forwell. He was a complete non-believer. He told us that Dab was a bootlegger and gunman, a hoodlum who became a successful entrepreneur, and that a couple of years before the end of Prohibition, his dad shot and killed his own brother. I've no idea if he was brought to trial and found guilty, or whether he ever did any time for the crimes he committed. I do know that the Reverend Forwell made an exhibit to the memory of his dad, the irreverent Forwell. A couple of presidential quotes from the incumbent. There are so many more where these come from. One thing I will say, they are almost certainly not the work of a scriptwriter. This is his own thinking. President Bush said, Make no mistake about it. I understand how tough it is. I talk to families who die. Oh, well. However, I am beginning to feel that I sort of understand what he means, sort of. Try this one. It goes back a year. President Bush said, I think, tide-turning. See, as I remember, I was raised in the desert, but the tides kind of, it's easy to see the tide turn. End of quote. Sounds like Japanese poetry. And that's been a word from Michael Jackson. Until the next time, as Walter said, and that's the way it is. Bye now. Oh, 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 oh,